So I'm, uh, I'm delighted to introduce our guest speakers today. We have Professor of Modern Hebrew Literature Adria Adriana Jacobs and Junior Research Fellow in Slavonic Languages Kasi uh, Kasia Simanska. And uh, today we'll be talking about working, uh, um, working in and on translation uh, with a focus on poetry. Uh, so the, the structure of our discussion group today will be as follows. We're going to start with uh, a brief uh, discussion, uh, a short conversation with our guest speakers, and I'll be facilitating. And uh, after that, we'll transition into a broader discussion of the pre-circulated text, and um, you're all invited to participate in that part. Um, so the first question I'd like to pose to the two of you is, um, in what ways does your research take place between languages and cultures? Adriana, if you'd like to start. Thank you. Well, first of all, thank you for the invitation to be part of this discussion. Um, so my research is always taking place in the space of the between. First and foremost, um, I'm a scholar of modern Hebrew literature and Israeli literature, um, and my academic language is English. So the very decision to write in English about this work requires that I translate. Um, and I also tend to work on writers who have not been translated into English, so I have to put on the hat of the translator in order to make that work accessible, quote-unquote, to a broader audience, one of the requirements of academic life. Um, but as my article on the figure of the Hebrew poet-translator illustrates, I'm also interested in writers and texts that engage um, this between zone or the in-between zone whether as translators proper, as is the case for Leah Goldberg and Yehuda Amichai, but also because of their preoccupation with the state of betweenness, um, their inability and refusal to be settled in one place um, or language, sometimes because of the particular contingencies of their biography. Um, and I'm attracted to writers um, who share my obsession with errancy and transformation and translation. And I suppose this is also an obsession that I've carried into my present life as a US resident, uh, US citizen residing in the UK in this particular um, political state of mind that we're in. <laughs> um, so that, that, that's my first stab at the question. How about you, Kasha? Okay, so, so just like in, in Andrena's case, my research also stems from, I think, a wider interest in the um, creative and subversive, I would say, potential of um, literary translation and any other forms really of testing or exploring the interlingual zone. And I'm particularly, inter particularly interested in um, experimental translations or what, whatever we call them, so, I don't know, creative, um, innovative, or, well, non-traditional translations. So, um, and especially the ways they challenge some of the uh, prevailing norms of translation production, but also some discourses about, I don't know, what translation should look like, like how translation should be made, and um, any other ideas about how they should represent the originals, or for example, how they should be made as finite, ready-to-go products that we are supposed to consume without realizing that what we read are translations. So uh, I think most recently in my um, DFL thesis, um, I explored a very specific um, strand of experimental translations, a self-reflexive strategy of uh, multiplying different translation variants across languages. Uh, I mostly worked on 
uh, Polish, uh, German, and um, English, but I also had a couple of examples from French and Italian. Um, and in this self-reflexive uh, strategy, um, which the same translator or a group of translators decided to employ, they, um, for some reason, decided to multiply different translation variants and then place them next to each other as legitimate, uh, well, legitimate versions of the original. Um, and I was interested in the um, aesthetical but also ethical um, implications of multiplying different translations. So. Uh, mostly in terms of dismantling the concept of one true equivalence that still, I think, prevails uh, in translation discourse, but also the um, ethical implications. So, for example, in the Polish post-communist cases, I argue that uh, different ideological interpretations of the same original, when they are presented next to each other, this also serves as a democratic forum for discussing um, different possible interpretations, different voices, and also ideological stances. So this is how, how it yeah how it worked in my research. Brilliant, thank you. Um, so the next question I'd like to pose to you is: uh, What are the advantages of working this way rather than within one language and one culture, if such a thing is even possible? Yeah, exactly. So we were thinking with Adriana that this question is a bit tendentious, um, mostly because we think that no literature really could be has been created in a national vacuum. And some of these most interesting um, phenomena happen just at the intersection or at the crossroads of different languages and uh, cultures. Um, and also because I mostly focus on the European context, I think that translation has always been a practice inherent in the European cultural exchange, uh, starting with the, the Romans translating the Greeks, the <coughs> um, different disputes about the Bible and how these disputes led to some political flashpoints, you know, um, phenomena like, historical phenomena like Reformation, um, and later the pan-European um, currents like Romanticism or Modernism. So having that in mind, I think um, all these international currents, in a sense, they were nourished by translation production as well and cultural exchanges. And I think translations are just the most salient and I think the most immediate points of contact uh, between languages. So um, in a sense, when we look at translations, we get a better, I think, or the bigger picture of this uh, panorama of intercultural exchanges. Thank you. Adriana? Yeah, I, I mean, um, the question in, invites the question whether it's even possible to work within one language or culture. Um, and I would say that the very possibility of this is a sort of dangerous fiction. Um, as an American now in post-election uh, <laughs> state, I recently saw another of these Trump ads that said, you know, make America great again, one people, one place. It, it was, it, again, this sort of uh, uh, fantasy of the, the one people and all that this implies um, is something that I think um, we have to be careful um, not to romanticize <laughs> a little too much. Um, so I'll go ahead and just say that you know the monolingual, mo monocultural state isn't possible um, and address how those advantages have manifested in my own work um, by way of a particular example, um, which is that recently in the afterword to my book, which deals with um, the uh, very intimate intertwined relationship between translation and poetry in the modern Hebrew context, I was writing about um, a Hebrew poem by the poet Leah Goldberg, um, 
about whom I wrote in that article. And in her poem, she references a Chinese poet. She leaves him unnamed. Um, we know from the Hebrew that she's referring to a male poet. Um, and she alludes to this poet sitting by the Yellow River. Um, again, this is all in Hebrew. So I was uh, drawn to this little puzzle. I wanted to sort of figure out um, what she was referring to exactly. Um, and also tantalized by this idea that Leah Goldberg was reading Chinese poetry and in what language was she reading it? Um, in Hebrew, in German, English, French, Italian, any of the other languages that she knew. So I ended up reading hundreds of poems about the Yellow River. Um, I delved into multiple translations, um, did a lot of word searches online, looked at a lot of old paintings, seeing if that would inspire a connection, and then finally concluded that she was alluding to a poem by the 8th century poet Li Bai. Um, I won't explain how I got to that here, it's in the book. But the sort of aggressive and distracted traveling that I was doing in the course of um, finding a source for this illusion um, is sort of fundamental to comparative study, I think. But as my example hopefully shows, that Goldberg also has this travel bug. Otherwise, she wouldn't be making this sort of reference in her poem. Um, so already within this Hebrew poem, you find signs of the impossibility of staying in one place um, and in one language. Um, so I would sort of even just sort of resist um, that framing altogether. Um, and certainly if you work in translation, just the very act of working in translation means that you've already rejected it to begin with. Brilliant. So uh, next I'd like to ask, um, what are the biggest challenges or problems that you've faced uh, working with this uh, very comparative and multilingual approach? And I'm sure there are quite a few you could bring up, yeah. so I could just pick a few specific examples. Um, well, I think if the, if the problem is the approach of dealing with a literature in a sort of multilingual, multicultural way and being drawn to its translational possibilities, then I would say that as a scholar of modern Hebrew literature, the, the problem that I often encounter is that Hebrew literature has become so conflated with um, the state of Israel um, that it's really hard for people both within and outside of not just the state but also in academe. Um, to see that Hebrew literature has this sort of rich transnational and comparative and multilingual history, um, and one that precedes by many decades uh, this, the state of Israel and 20th century events. Um, so it can be sometimes complicated, um, though I insist, to make a case to combine my work with other sort of projects and collaborations. Um, also, Hebrew literature is often sort of and for good reasons, but um, compartmentalized as a Jewish literature. Um, so that becomes sort of a framework that it, where it can potentially get stuck. Um, so the challenge for me is always finding sort of new ways to sort of new relations for, for the work that I do that take it out of sort of these predictable um, boxes. Um, not that those boxes aren't productive, and, and they're certainly necessary, but they're not the only ones. Um, but also, in the context of, um, of Hebrew and Jewish studies, insisting the way that I do that Hebrew is a translational language um, can be construed as making a sort of political statement <laughs> in this day and age. So also within my particular specialization, um, there can be at times some resistance to this sort of framing. Um, and then I suppose there's the, the general issue of um, 
the kind of biases people bring to um, their understanding of translation. Um, and that's one thing, especially when you're a scholar of poetry and working on translation. If I had a quid for every time someone said, but can you even translate poetry? <laughs> As though this is sort of the central question that I'm dealing with. Um, but it's already that there is at times a kind of resistance to translation itself as being a kind of uh, legitimate academic field of interest and inquiry. Yeah. Yes, I think I had the <coughs> same impression. So when it comes to these institutional obstacles, um, I think it's the same in every discipline. So it's not only about sorry, it's not only about Hebrew, I guess. Um, and that I think stems from um, a couple of reasons. So, for example, here, even here at Oxford, when we uh, learn for the first time about translation, for example, un in undergraduate courses, um, I think translation is just used or reduced to um, a means, a pedagogical means of testing language knowledge. So I think that creates a misconception that translation is something very dull, and also is just a um, a medium or a means of um, checking whether the student has understood the um, original text. Um, and this, in a sense, I think results in this uh, linguistically oriented uh, notion of equivalence. So this is what the original says, and this is how we are going to reconstruct that in, in translation. Uh, but um, I don't think that these institutional obstacles um, can be narrowed down only to students, because I think that we ourselves in our academic practice also um, forget about um, about the notion of equivalence itself. So although we are trying to resist the, this notion, at the same time when we, for example, try to argue about translations done, for example, in Hebrew or Polish or German, then at the same time we need to translate them back into English, which is our language of research. And at the same time we are assuming that there is this neutral or transparent means of presenting it to the readers in English although we still argue that the original translations were actually creative and transgressive. So in a sense, there is a paradoxical element to our own academic practice, I guess, that um, although at the back of our mind we still think about translations as something very um, creative and having this transgressive potential, at the same time we treat it in some context as a um, neutral or transparent means of presenting it, mm -hmm. you know, of explaining to the English-speaking reader uh, what we argue for. So in a sense we also need to be aware of the fact that the language we use for criti for criticism but also for just understanding what is in the original but also in translations also historically and institutionally situated and we always interpret these texts and then translate them back into our own category. So it's good to be aware of that, I think. So I think this segues very nicely into the next question which is um, how do you confront these own problems in your own research practices? Mm -hmm. um, I think I could uh, answer for Adriana because <laughs> that was really uh, uh, nicely done, I think, in her um, article that we all hopefully read. Um, for example, when she struggled with the term go-betweens, um, I think she just prepared or just presented um, a variety of different possible translations. So she didn't decide to prepare just one, like present one parallel version uh, of Makavet, is it? Matavech. sorry. Uh, but uh, I think she just devoted the entire paragraph to explaining that, well, this is a very particular term and depending on the, I think, on the uh, perspective of interpretative lens, 
it can mean so many different things and it can be translated in so many different ways. So I think this is this way of uncircling <laughs> the original meaning uh, is quite good. This is what I was also trying to do in my um, default project. So except for um, anal besides analyzing um, different translations of the same original while preparing interlineal or yeah versions or cribs, I was also uh, wary of just putting one single version. I was like trying to add as many footnotes um, and um, pursue this approach of thick translation, as uh, some people would call it. So I think this is one uh, way of dealing with this problem. Yeah, I would agree. I think that that sort of thick translation approach is probably one that, well, it's clear in the article that I, that mm. I wrote that that's the one that I sort of use. I do want to, though, say that I, I also don't think that my job is to sort of um, unpack every single word and sort of give the reader every sort of permutation or option. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, I am myself, whether I'm translating or presenting an academic reading, I'm making choices. Um, and I thought that was actually really interesting in the Carson essay, that Carson sometimes can feel like she's inviting all possibilities, but actually she hones in on sort of specific choices. And she's very clear about the fact that she is making choices. Um, even the decision not to make a choice could be a choice. Um, but I also, uh, in a more practical sense, one thing that I do is I, I refuse to translate everything. So if I have a translation available that someone has done, even if it's not a perfect translation, I'll include it because I feel like I almost have this sort of ethical responsibility to shed light on sort of what is out there in translation and not to claim that I have some sort of authority um, whether it's as a, as a scholar, as a translator, to have the sort of final <coughs> word on how a text should be rendered in translation. And then when I do include my own translations, and this is one reason my book took such a long time <laughs> to do, is that um, I go to also great lengths to produce what I think of as being like my translation of a, of a poem and not just this sort of academic translation where I just sort of You'll see sometimes in academic writing, people have these disclaimers. They're like, well, this is just a literal translation. And <laughs> I, I did this for a while until I realized that I, I, I was sort of um, defeating my own purpose, undermining my own argument about translation, which is that it's transgressive and creative. And why couldn't I do that myself in my own practice as a scholar? Um, so my disclaimer is always that it's not literal. And uh, if you're looking for equivalence, you won't find it here. Um, but I'm always happy to point people to more literal versions if they wish to have it. Or in my discussion of a text, I will offer kind of the more literal choices so they can also see where I have sort of the, the range of meaning that I've given a particular word. Um, but I'd also say that um, uh, thinking more broadly, how I deal with the various issues of being a scholar of translation in this day and age is that um, I think that um, for me, uh, it's very important to, to avoid boredom and stagnation. Um, and I think that sometimes in academia, and you might find this as your own, um, as you develop your own careers in academia, um, the pressure to specialize and to sort of work within your specialization um, can sometimes feel a little confining. And so I think for me, one way to avoid this um, and to remaining always a bit unsettled in my own work um, is to read aggressively outside of my area. 
So if you see my bedstand today, it's full of Korean poets in translation. Um, I'm obsessed with the American poets, uh, Maggie Nelson and Eileen Miles right now. I've been reading Spencer's The Fairy Queen for a potential new project and uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. So you'll see there's no Hebrew literature there. So I think that that's also really important. I mean, you'll hear this a lot, but I think reading outside of your zone is crucial. Um, and, and obviously I'm attracted to writers who are always doing that as well. So, um, so I think this uh, brings it, uh, in another point that I'm curious to hear about. Maybe we can discuss it more in the, uh, in the actual discussion. But, um, about how you're uh, coping with this sort of institutional resistance. Because I think this is something that, especially as, as young scholars, um, something that probably a lot of people can relate to. So I'm not going to put you on the spot right now, but perhaps we can yeah. think about this and, and talk about it in, in a few minutes. Um, and uh, we'll talk about it later. Okay, we'll talk about it later. <laughs> and uh, finally, the last, uh, the last question that I'd like to bring up is um, um, how would you define uh, translation studies in a sentence? So, and, Diana, uh, that's a brilliant definition. <laughs> <sorry>. <laughs> and um, why is the discipline itself important? Mm. Well, I think I've addressed why the discipline is important. So I actually had fun with this question, okay, and I don't have one sentence, <laughs> right. so just bear with me. So I, yeah, so when I saw this sentence, I thought, gosh, how do people define translation studies? And Wikipedia, of course, um, <laughs> has this sentence. Uh, translation studies is an academic interdiscipline dealing with the systematic study of the theory, description, and application of translation, interpreting, and localization. Um, so the word localization is hyperlinked, so of course I clicked it. I thought, wow, okay, what is localization? What does that mean here? Um, and when you click it, you get this. Language localization is the process of adapting a product that has been previously translated into multiple languages to a specific country or region from the Latin locus and the English term locale. It is the second phase of a larger process of product translation and cultural adaptation to account for differences in distinct markets, a process known as internationalization and localization. Well, suffice it to say, I think this is a terrible definition of translation studies. Um, and it articulates for me the opposite of what translation means to me, which is that, and this is my sentence, that translation studies is the study of unsettled, ambivalent, transgressive, horrific, uncomfortable movements between, within, across, over, and around languages, cultures, and texts. And if I could say a few more sentences, that basically for me, and this is sort of a la Ann Carson, it's the study of taking a thing, a word if you will, and you begin to move it across somewhere, and then you get distracted, and you stop by other places, you fall in love, you make a home, etc., until you decide, like Ulysses, that you're going to pick up and move again, um, and you keep on moving, and that for me is the study of translation. Thank you. Um, at this point, I'd like to take any specific questions, um, if anyone has them for either Adriana or Kasha. At this point, we'll turn off the recorder. Um, so if you're shy, hopefully that will help.